So I don't know about any of you guys when you were children, but one thing I loved to do was to tie knots. We had these knot books that would teach you how to tie all these different sorts of knots. And I liked practicing them, and my cousins and I would get into this, and sometimes knots are not very practical, but at other times they are. And um, we as cousins growing up, we had this rowboat at my grandparents' place, and the most important knot to tie if you're on the sea is what's called a bowline. And a bowline is the special knot you use to tie your boat to its anchor. And this was always essential as kids because if you didn't tie the knot correctly, when the waves or the storm or the stress came, you would lose the rowboat and the next day after the storm, everyone would be going up and down the beaches looking for where the rowboat could go. You had to learn to tie this knot that was strong and tied to an anchor that was secure. And so if you could master this, the boat would stay secure even if there was storms. No matter how high the waves or how strong the wind, the boat would hold secure. And most of us learned these knots from our fathers. They taught us how to tie a bowline the right way so that we would learn how to attach the boat in a way that would stay secure. And this is a picture of us in the Christian life. Um, we are assailed by storms. We're assailed by strong winds, and we're assailed by fierce drifting currents. And I think we could liken this attack from above and attack from below as in two categories, really, of trials and temptations. So all of us are faced with these in different ways. We have trials, which is like the wind. It's, it comes from above, from outside of us, and it blows us and seeks to topple us. And these trials, they press us and they challenge us. It's an attack from above. But then we also have the attack of temptations from below. And temptations come from within us. And it's like that drifting current in our own hearts, that our own hearts are so prone to wander. And so when we mix these temptations of our own hearts with the pressure of difficult circumstances or hard things in life that we're going through, this creates a storm that'll try us and seek to pull us in our faith, to cause us to drift away from Christ, to drift away from living the Christian life that we hold dear. And we want to avoid shipwreck. This idea that you can shipwreck your faith is in the New Testament. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 talks about some who have made shipwreck of their faith. And how do you make shipwreck of your faith? by not holding on to the anchor, to holding on to the anchor. And this is an idea I want us to see as we look at this text in Hebrews 4 today, where it calls us, in light of Christ's priesthood, to hold fast to Christ, to hold fast the confession of our faith. And I want to draw two main ideas out of this passage for us today. The first is that we are called to hold fast to Christ because we know that Christ in his priestly ministry holds fast to us. He's a strong anchor that holds us, and that encourages us to in turn hold strongly to him. Secondly, is that we have need of strength in this hold. To hold to Christ, it takes strength, and that strength is also given by God. We need the strength to hold on, and we gain that strength by going to the throne of grace, by going to God. And so the second idea I want us to see is that we draw near to the throne of grace. We draw near being encouraged, again, by Christ, 
who first drew near to us. This idea that Christ drew near to us on earth, that we would now be able to draw near to him in heaven. These are the two ideas, holding fast and drawing near. Because if we learn to hold fast and draw near, this is what will give us that strong hold to the anchor that we don't drift through the trials and temptations of life. And this was a big theme in this book of Hebrews when the author's writing. We see this starting in chapter 2, verse 1, where the writer says that we need to give earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip to release the grip, lest these things slip away from us. Or chapter 3 and verse 6, where we're told that we're Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope. Or in 3 verse 12, we're called to exhort one another lest we have an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. So this is an idea at the forefront of the people's minds who are reading this letter to the Hebrews. Paul's warning them against slipping away, warning them against drifting. And in the passage we read in chapter 4 here, he's talking about this picture of Israel in the land of Canaan seeking to enter into the promised land. And he says they didn't enter because of unbelief. The unbelief is this big picture of why they kept drifting. The trials of the desert, the temptations of the desert, constantly drew them away from the Lord, but the root was unbelief. And they didn't enter the rest, but he says there remains a rest for the people of God, an eternal, heavenly rest. And we're called to persevere in this life, persevere through the wilderness in faith. And he comes, and just before our text, we read about the word of God and how it searches our hearts and it exposes us. It challenges us in our self-righteousness. And I think maybe a big idea here is that we're thinking of, wow, I am scared of this. I know my own heart and my own temptations, and I know how I respond under trials, and this should cause us to distrust ourselves. I know my heart. I shouldn't assume that I'm secure. Because I think we all know lots of people who look like they're attached really closely to the anchor, but there's actually no hold there. So when the storms come, they drift away. And we shouldn't trust the own stability of our hearts. And so we come to our text with this thought of, am I one of those? I need to hold on. But then our text is an encouragement. An encouragement to hold on because we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest who came down to us. And in this life of trials and temptations, we can have great courage and great resilience as we push on to hold fast our confession. And Christ is the encouragement to us. So let's begin our first point about holding fast, that Christ holds fast to us that we might hold fast to him. Verse 14 again says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So the first line there is saying that we ought to hold fast our confession because we have a great, high, heavenly high priest. And maybe that's not the first thing you and I would think of. Why should I hold fast my confession? Well, obviously, because Jesus is our great high priest. How does that make sense? Here's what I think this is saying. Christ Jesus is our high priest in heaven. And this 
is eminently encouraging. Uh, high priest, there are two essential functions to the priesthood. We could sum it up as basically two ideas, those of sacrifice and those of intercession. The priests were charged in the Old Testament with doing the sacrifice and then praying to God. So in a sense, you could think of it as seeking God's forgiveness via atonement, a sacrifice of atonement, and then praying to God for forgiveness on, on account of the sacrifice offered. And Christ fulfills the priesthood. This is what we see so often in the book of Hebrews, how Christ fulfills the Old Testament law. And Christ is the great, high, final priest. And Hebrews 10.12 says that Christ presented the once-for-all final sacrifice for sins. So that work of sacrifice is fully and finally accomplished in Christ Jesus, once for all. He's accomplished it. It is finished, he said. But secondly, that work of intercession, Christ continues. As Romans 8 tells us that he intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for each and every believer. If you know Christ, he is praying for you. And not with no basis. He prays based on the sacrifice he's already presented. And so that's why then Romans 8 can tell us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because when Satan comes to accuse us and tell us of our sins, which is true, we have sins, Christ as our intercessor, when we are in him, he stands before God presenting his own sacrifice and saying, no, Father, there's no condemnation for my, for my brothers and sisters because they have been covered in my righteousness. I paid for all their sins. And this is how Christ holds us fast. It's because when you've been brought into the family of God, if Christ has paid for your sins, they can never be unpaid for. If you've been forgiven for your sins, you can never be unforgiven. If you've been grabbed in the hands of Christ, nothing can snatch you out. We're secure. You don't have to worry with Christ that he's going to abandon you. You don't have to worry that he's, worry that he's going to leave you or forsake you. His hold on his people is so strong that Paul says in Romans 8, I'm persuaded neither death nor life, anything, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Christ as our high priest, high priest reaches down and holds fast his people. And so this is Christ's strong hold on us. And how should Christ's hold on us encourage us to hold on to him? Uh, people often would accuse the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that it might promote laxity in the Christian life. If you know that Christ has a hold of you and never is going to let go, why would you try hard? Why would you work hard to live a holy life? And I think when people bring up that objection, they're actually getting it backwards. I would say that it's actually the knowledge of how tightly Christ is holding on to us that encourages our perseverance. Uh, let's illustrate this. Let's go from the sea to the land. If you've ever been rock climbing, either to a gym or at a summer camp maybe, you get harnessed up and attached to a rope because in front of you is a wall that is so steep and so high 
that you would never attempt climbing it without the rope. And if you did, you'd be hazarding your own life. And it's actually the strength and security of the rope holding you that encourages you to climb. If you looked up and see that the rope is fraying at the top, you'd be like, I'm out. I don't think I'm going to climb. Or if you don't trust that your buckles are fastened, or you don't trust the person belaying you and holding on, you're not going to climb. But it's when you trust the security and can put off the distractions of what if he lets go? What if I'm not his? What if he doesn't have me? That you can actually focus on the climb and focus on the handholds and persevering and going to new heights in your Christian life than you've ever gone. We have to trust Christ's hold on us. And then we can get about the business of living for him, loving him, serving his people. And this really is an exercise of faith. You have to have faith that the hold will be secure so that even if we do, as we all do, inevitably let go at points, inevitably slip up, inevitably miss a grab, we are still held secure by the love of our Savior. And if we think that if it's up to us to hold ourselves, why would we even climb? Because all my hope then is in myself instead of in Christ. But we're still called to hold on. You don't climb unless you're actively using strength and taking hold of the wall. And so we need to hold on. And this passage says to hold on to the confession or profession of your faith. Now, what does this mean? What are we talking about when we're thinking of holding fast the profession of your faith? Well, I think a couple other verses illuminate this for us. Hebrews 10.23 is a parallel text, and it says uh, to hold the confession of your faith. The confession of your faith. Or in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul references the good confession you made before many witnesses. And I don't think it would be wrong to say that this confession or profession of our faith is akin to the sort of profession many of you made when you took your church membership vows. The confession of our faith, the summary of what this Christian life is. And our confession of faith generally has three parts. An understanding that we are sinners, God is holy, and that Christ is the only way of salvation. Then a trusting in Christ in our hearts, a relying, a resting on him. And then an an agreement that we will endeavor to live godly lives. That we will endeavor to be holy in our conduct. That is, our confession of faith encompasses everything it means to be a Christian. What we believe, what we love in our hearts, and how we act with our hands. And so we are called to hold on to this confession. Hold on to everything, which could really be summarized in who Christ is, what Christ has done. And I just want to pose, by way of application, three different things for us to hold on to. Three different ways to hold on to Christ as we're seeking to hold fast our confession. First, hold on to Christ himself. We need to hold on to Christ himself as our mediator, as our only hope of salvation. And what this necessarily implies that we must let go of our good works as a way of seeking to merit our favor and standing with God. A lot of Christians want to try to hold on to the things in their own life and the good things they do 
in order for the Father to love them, in order for the Father to accept them. But that's totally backwards. We need to let go of our good works and hold on to Christ and his righteousness alone for salvation. And a lot of people think that we can hold on to our church attendance or our consistent Bible reading or our good West Michigan conservative family values as the things that make us good, as the things that set us apart. But no, we have to cast even the best things about us. And those are good things. We have to set the best things about us, let go of that, and only hold on to Christ, by whose righteousness alone we can find favor with God. So first, we need to hold on to Christ. Secondly, we need to hold on to the word of Christ, God's word. Because our religion is not just subjective. It's not just an experience that we go through. It's founded on objective truth. It's grounded upon historical facts, real history that really happened. And the waves and wind in the culture around us try to cause us to let go of the Bible in so many ways. They try to make us let, to let go of what Scripture says about marriage or gender or the very essence of the Word of God itself, that it is God's Word and not man's. Or... Um, how the world was created, or miracles. All these things the Bible would make us compromise. And if we're going to keep a strong grip on the word of God, we have to watch out for anything that causes us to loosen our grip. Because the enemy is subtle, and he's willing to work patiently and slowly. Or if he can get us one finger at a time to loosen our grip. This doctrine, hell, creation, Christ as the only way. Eventually, the Bible falls and we lose the foundation of our faith. So brothers and sisters, hold fast to Christ and hold fast to his word. And thirdly, hold fast to Christ's body. Christ is the head, and he has a body, and we need to hold on to one another as well. And I referenced Hebrews 3.13 earlier, which says, Exhort one another daily, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the truth, that sin is really tricky. Sin tricks us into thinking that the sin will bring us happiness. That the sinful thing is actually the good thing. Sin is deceitful. And that hardens our heart, and that's the way we slowly drift away from Christ, through sin. And so he says, the writer, that we need to exhort one another daily. That means we need each other. We need the body you need to be exhorted daily that you don't get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I need to be exhorted daily that I don't get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, am not exhorting people daily, and I'm definitely not being exhorted daily. So I think for each one of us, we have room to grow, to get into each other's lives that we might exhort one another and be exhorted. And to exhort your brother or sister about the deceitfulness of sin implies that you know what sins they're liable to be deceived by. We're talking about lowering our fronts, lowering our defenses, and allowing each other to even know the sins we're struggling with, that we would be able to encourage and exhort one another and be strengthened by one another's faith. So hold on to Christ himself, hold on to Christ's word, and let's hold on to Christ's body as we seek to hold fast the profession of our faith.
And so, as we've looked at this point, Christ hold fa- holds fast to us, so we ought to hold fast to him. And what I would ask you as just we close this point is, where in your life do you need to tighten your grip? Are there winds of trial in your life right now? Health trials, relational trials. What is really pushing and pressing your faith? Or is it temptations? Are there particular lusts in your heart or pride in your life that is seeking to cause you to drift? Worldliness, godlessness. Where is the enemy tempting you and trying to make you loosen your grip? This is the area we need to focus on in order to be strengthened. We need to have a laser focus on the things in our life and fight the biggest giants first. And so if we're looking at, we want to hold on in these particular areas that we're thinking of that we're weak in, we know that we have need of strength and a strength that is outside of ourselves. And where do we go to get this strength? Well, our text tells us again that we go to the throne of grace. Here's what verses 15 and 16 say. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The second point we're going to look at is that Christ drew near to us, that we might draw near to him. So though our priest is high, our great high priest, Jesus first came very low. He came, and this text tells us, if you flip it around, that he can be touched with infirmity, that he could sympathize with our human feelings of weakness. And this is the beauty of the incarnation, as Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus was made like unto his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to learn mercy. Christ is compassionate in how he takes on our human weakness. Christ fully shared the human experience. But in one different point where it says in verse 15, tempted like as we are yet without sin. And this idea in this verse is often confusing to Christians about what it means that Christ was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And the problem there is that we very quickly import our exact experience and idea of temptation to Christ. But there's a really important difference is that um, James 1.14 tells us that we sin when we are enticed, tempted by our own lusts, our own sinful lusts. But Jesus didn't have any sinful lusts. Jesus didn't have sinful desires. So in that sense, his temptations are different than ours and that he didn't have sinful desires to draw him to. So I think maybe a better idea for us to think of in this passage is to think of that he was tried and that he was tested in all points of genuine human experience. Christ didn't hold back anything in taking on our weakness. He didn't live in the shell of a human body, fully living in his divinity. He fully became a real man who really hungered, who was really tired, really betrayed, really in pain. He fully shared our humanity. He wasn't half human. 
And I think the idea we're getting at here, we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, a beautiful verse which says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Christ's grace is. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. Didn't count it. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he let go of it. Christ let go of the riches and glories of heaven and came to earth, came to walk our soil, came to have our skin and to be like one of us. And Christ's earthly ministry, walking as one of us, Christ walked with such a compassion for our broken humanity, such a tenderness in his heart for people who are going through the trials and temptations and storms of life. Just think about how amazing Christ's ministry was, how Christ went and preached good news to the poor, how he brought healing to people like lepers who were outcast and marginalized from society, how he went against the cultural code and would sit and talk with women who were in many ways outside of society in that time. Christ had so much compassion for sinners in his earthly ministry. He had dinner with the worst of sinners. And he says, all you who labor, you who are heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. He weeps over Jerusalem. Christ had such a a heart that loved and cared for the brokenness, the sin in each one of our lives that causes us such great torment of conscience. Christ was so compassionate. And the thing we miss here then is that Christ's earthly compassion doesn't stop once he's the high king in heaven. His priestly compassion isn't negated by his kingly rule, but Christ continues to exercise a compassionate and merciful heart for people here on earth, even while he reigns in heaven. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote a whole book on this topic called The Heart of Christ in Heaven, towards sinners on earth. And one thing he says in it is that, he says, Christ's heart, in respect of its pity and compassion, remains the same as it was on earth. He intercedes in heaven with the same heart that he did here below. And he is as meek, as gentle, as easy to be entreated, as tender in his compassion as he was on earth. So Christ still bids you, come to me, you who weary and labor and are heavy laden. Christ is still gentle and lowly in heart. He's still merciful and compassionate to us in our sin and brokenness. And so when we recognize this, okay, when we get a hold of how much Christ loves and cares about us in our needs of life, that encourages us to go to him. When we see how Christ first drew near to us, how low he came to draw near to us, that should give us greater courage to draw near to him. Uh, Perhaps, I'll illustrate this, I was thinking of different maybe bosses I've worked for. And I naturally don't really like asking for help, especially to a boss. The boss is there in his office doing important boss work, and I'm doing my own little work in my cubicle, And I feel a distance, an intimidation to go to him. And even if the boss has told me, which some had, 
oh yeah, my office is open, you can come and talk to me anytime you need. And they say that, but I don't feel that. I don't feel free to go. But what does encourage me to overcome that distance I feel from how much higher up the boss is than me is when my boss has come out and he's been walking around us with all of us in our little cubicles and he walks around and he sits down by me and he says, hey, what are you working on? Can I help you with anything? And I think, oh, he actually does care. And like, oh, he's willing to put stickers on envelopes with me. He's willing to do this. And if he's come so near, maybe I can go talk to him. Maybe I can go believe his word when he said that I should come to him. And so it is with us in Christ. Although he's the high king, he came so low. He was among us. He did all he could to share our humanity, to pay for our sin, that we would then have access to him. And so we should be greatly encouraged to draw near to that throne of grace because Christ drew near to us. And he has that same compassion, that mercy that led Christ to come and take on our humanity forever is the same mercy with which he calls you and I to go to him in our sin, to go to him in our weakness and in all our needs. We have courage to draw near to him. And so what does it mean for us to draw near to the throne of grace? What are some questions we can ask about how and in what manner we draw near? And I just want to ask some questions of this idea. So first, what are we talking about when we're talking about drawing near to the throne of grace? We draw near to the throne of grace in worship. When we worship God, we come before his throne. But preeminently, we draw near in prayer. Prayer is the means by which we come to that throne of grace to receive help in our needs. It's prayer. That's what we're talking about. But why do we come? Why should we come to the throne of grace? Well, the end of the verse says, we come to find grace to help in time of need. So we need help because we're helpless, and we have needs because we're needy. For however highly we may think of ourselves, we all have great need of help and we have great needs. And as we've been talking, maybe your needs and your need of help, you primarily think of those trials you're going through, health, relationships, or those temptations you're going through, the lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. We have need of great help, but not just with trial and temptation, we need help to live the life we're called to live. And if you don't feel that need, which I often don't, it's probably because we don't have a big enough mission, a big enough vision of the fact that we're each called to serve and advance the kingdom of Christ with our gifts, with the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. If our mission is bigger, we'll realize we have much more need of help. So why do we come? Because we have needs. We need help. Where do we come? We come to the throne of grace. This throne that we once would have seen as a throne of judgment becomes to the believer a throne of grace. This throne of judgment from which in our sin we would run is now the throne of grace to which we freely as children come. We come to a throne of grace. Do you see Christ's throne and you coming to him as a place of grace or do you see it as a place of judgment? A place to come and just hear all the ways as the Spirit testifies that you're not measuring up. Or do you come because you know that's where grace is? And if you understand that the throne is where grace is, you will come because we need grace. We need to grow in grace. 
And we don't just come to a bare throne, but to the one who sits on it. Our Father, through the Son, our brother. We are coming to our Father. Parents, how do your children come to you when they have needs, when they need help, when they've injured themselves? We ought to come to the Father in the same way. Which is our next question. How should we come? We should come boldly. Our passage says, with confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace. So that means, firstly, that we don't come timidly. We don't come in fear, thinking that our prayers won't be heard. But neither do we come presumptuously. We don't come with a list of demands. We don't come commanding God and telling him what to do. But we come with confidence. And I think the balance is perfectly captured here in the Lord's Prayer. We're taught to pray, Father. So we come boldly as to our Father. But it's our Father in heaven. We come reverently. So we come to our Father first of all, though. And I think that's the part most of us miss, that we get to come as to our Father who loves us, who loves his children with the same love with which he loves Christ. That's what the last verse of John 17 tells us. Christ prays that the love with which the Father loves him would be in his people. And that's an incredible truth, that you and I as believers in Christ could be loved with the same love that the Father loves Christ. That's an incredible love. That's something to meditate on. And when should we come to the throne of grace? Well, we're called to come always, to pray without ceasing, but we ought also to come at specific times, to come in our closet, as Jesus would teach us. Or as David would say, in early I seek thee, to come to offer our sacrifices morning and evening, especially on the days of public worship. Also on days when our church calls each other together to come and pray during the week with our own families and at other times. We pray at always and we pray at specific times. And I think we, you know, we can't err in coming too often. You can't tire out and annoy God by coming too frequently. But I fear that we often come far too little. And we don't have faith to recognize the resources that are offered to us. We don't really comprehend how much for us there is in God, and so we don't go to get it. Or maybe we think we're, we'll just survive on our own. Uh, think of, if you've ever invited a friend over on, say, a Saturday afternoon, for let's just say 2 o'clock. You're inviting a friend over for 2 o'clock, and you're planning on spending the afternoon together. So your friend comes at 2 o'clock, and you're having a great time, it's 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock now, they're probably going to be heading home somewhat soon, you want to get started on dinner, and your friend just happens to mention that, oh, I, I actually forgot to have either breakfast or lunch today. And you say, what? You haven't had breakfast or lunch? And you didn't tell me earlier? You know, I'm your friend. I, you know I have food in my fridge. I would have given you some. I could have gotten you cereal at least. You're sitting here starving just because you had shame to ask me as your friend. And how much do we do that to God? God says you have not because you ask not. We don't ask and because we, we don't believe that God's heart is really to give. We don't really believe that God wants to pour out on us the Holy Spirit. That he wants to give us good gifts. But he wants us to ask for them. Giving someone a gift that they don't want is a terrible feeling. But when you know your child is desiring and really wanting this gift, when you give it to them, 
you're both delighted. And so we need to desire so much more of God than we do. We need to be after so much more spiritual power than we have. We need to be after so much more holiness and so much more fruitfulness than we're content with in our lives. And we need to go to our Father to get it, believing that his pantry is full, that he has all sufficient resource and supply for his people. And there is a banquet of grace prepared for the believer, but we're so often content to pick up the crumbs that fall from the table and think that that's good enough. We need to go to our Father for more. And so in conclusion, in this life of trials, this life of of temptations that assail us from above and below, seeking to cause us to fall away and drift in our faith, we have need of the throne of grace. And we have need of the throne of grace daily to find strength to hold on to Christ, our anchor, in those trials and in those temptations. We need to remember in there that Christ does hold us fast by the gospel. The fact that he died for our sakes and was raised, and that the one entrusts in him will not be put to shame. That he bore our sins so that we would have his righteousness, and that we're secure in the love of our Father. That encourages us to hold fast to him. And when we remember that he's so merciful and compassionate, that he wants us to come to him. We're encouraged to come, knowing that that's his desire and his heart for us. And so, final two applications is simply this. First, and we said this after the first point, but just look at your life. Examine yourself. Where are you most being pressed? What is the major trial that is most seeking to squeeze your faith? What's the main temptation to which your heart is most prone to which you're most prone to wander. What is that? Look at yourself. And then look to Christ and go to him. Look to his face of mercy and go to the throne of grace for help. Admit that you have need of help. And in whatever that is in your life, whether it's a trial, a temptation, a particular desire to do good, go to the throne of grace to be equipped and resourced in order to hold fast to the anchor in that. The throne of grace awaits your arrival. Don't let it be empty of your presence, but go for strength. And just you admitting your need and going to the throne of grace glorifies God. Just the fact that you say to God that you don't have it altogether, and you're going to him, that honors him as the all-sufficient one. That honors him as the source of all supply. So look to your needs, look to your weaknesses, and go to the throne of grace. Let's go there in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is indeed a throne of grace for us, and that we can come boldly. Lord, you know every need here. You know know every difficulty each soul is going through. You know each sin each one is being tempted with. And so we do ask that you would give us power by your Spirit to live the life we could never live on our own. Strength to persevere. Strength that comes from heaven. Strength to resist and flee temptation, even the ones that our hearts most love. Lord, we desire to live holy lives. We desire to do good in your kingdom. So would you bless us? Would you shine on us with your face? God, bless each one at this church, each one in this congregation. Equip them with everything good to do your will. 
And would this church be known as a church that storms the throne of grace, that comes individually but comes together as well to seek all help, to seek all supply from our faithful God and loving Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ the Son.